We kicked off our new school year with the topical series entitled More, Recalibrating Our Hearts to God's Glory. And we talked about the fact that materialism and consumerism are two isms in our culture that are constantly bombarding our hearts, trying to shape and form them in ways that we might not even perceive. And the message that they're trying to have us buy into is the reality that all that matters is matter, and that spiritual things aren't really important, while the main purpose of this life is actually just to get more stuff. Well, left to ourselves, we can easily become like Judas and sell out Jesus for pocket change, or like Adam, who exchanged intimacy with God for that forbidden fruit. But catch this. In this series, I want you to know that what I'm arguing is, is that that desire that we all have for more isn't the problem. You catch that? The desire that we have inside for more than what we have is not the problem in and of itself. In fact, I still remember my heart throbbing and pulsating the first time I read C.S. Lewis's famous words from Mere Christianity, where he said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You hear that? So the God who can do far more abundantly than you ask or imagine created you and me with longings way too big for this world to satisfy. A culture tells us that we'd be satisfied by the always elusive better job or better spouse or better diet or better president. If we just had a better something, then we would be happy. And you'll notice that in this world, that joy that it promises is always just out of reach. So if I make a little bit more money, then I know that it just wasn't quite enough more and I need just a little bit more than that, right? And satisfaction is always just out of grasp as well. I mean, you, you grab that thing that you've been hoping in and then all of a sudden you feel like, okay, now I have a different kind of longing for something else or something more. It just didn't do it like it promised to. See, we... We see this all over the place, but catch this. The Bible constantly begs us not to settle for less, not to settle for less than Jesus. You want more? Seek more of the right thing. That's the message of the Bible. We need to recalibrate our hearts to want more of what God has for us. And so this morning, we're looking at Jesus' grapevine image in John 15, where Jesus tells Christians, catch this, this is what we're going to be talking about, He tells us to expect much more fruit if you're connected to the good root. That's what Jesus wants us to see in this text. Expect much more fruit if you're connected to the good root. Now, Judas has just left Jesus' upper room discourse in John 13 to sell Jesus out. And they've likely crossed the Kidron Valley, that valley where the the blood of the sacrifices during Passover would have fallen down into and and washed out. And so they would have had to step over that blood of sacrifice, Jesus Himself, who would later become our sacrifice, on their way to this Mount of Olives, where I'm sure they saw a vineyard or two. sure they saw grapes, like we're going to be talking about today. And it was there that Jesus found ripe imagery for his vivid metaphor. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. Now, first we're going to find in verse 1 that Jesus is the root and the Father is the great, the great gardener. 
Jesus is the fruit and the Father is the gardener. Uh, Those are two of the three roles we're going to be talking about today. The root and the gardener. Uh, Look with me again in John 15. Here's what Jesus says. I am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. What a dramatic statement. Now you might look at that and you say, hey, that does not seem like drama to me. It is a dramatic statement. If you peel it back and see what he's saying here. See, Jesus here is saying at least three things about himself that are pretty striking. For one, you'll notice that he says that Jesus, he says, is God. He says, I am God. Well, you might say, where does he say that? Well, this is actually the seventh I am statement that we find in the book of John. A, a, a statement that he's really famous for in his gospel. Now, I am, you'll remember, uh, we get uh, an understanding of the significance of that from the Old Testament. So in Exodus 3, God told Moses to go back into Egypt and to deliver his people Israel out of bondage into the promised land. Moses, of course, is scared. He's going to be asking a Pharaoh to release all of his slaves. And so he says, well, okay, God, if I do this, then who shall I tell them sent me? In Exodus 3.14, we're told that God says, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am sent me to you. And John Frame says, speaking of this I am statement, this is where the name of Yahweh comes from. And it might even... If you look at it, take on a causative kind of meaning. Like I, God might be saying, I, I cause to be that I cause to be. So only our eternal God can claim to be the uncreated one who creates and gives life in and of himself. He needs nothing. He receives nothing. Everything comes from him and is for him. So catch this. Jesus claims to be fully God here. He is as much I am as God the Father is. But he's not done. He's, he's not done yet with the shock therapy. He also says that Jesus is, second, the true Israel. Now in his commentary, Don Carson says in the Old Testament, the vine is a common symbol for Israel. The, pub, the covenant people of God. So in Isaiah 5, 1-7 that Malachi read at the beginning of this service, we, we see this imagery of Israel as a vine. Really common in the Old Testament. But what's interesting, if you go and you look up all of those images of Israel as a vine, it's striking that whenever Israel is pictured this way, that God is actually highlighting something about Israel. It's the fact that they fail to produce good fruit and are looking forward to a coming judgment. And so if you're reading through the Bible and you see a vine, you just immediately go, "Uh uh-oh, right? Like this is not going to be good. But here it's different. See, in contrast to what you would expect in the Old Testament with the vine, Jesus comes and says, I am the true vine. In other words, the one whom Israel pointed to. Like, you weren't supposed to be satisfied with Israel. Israel was a huge sign pointing towards someone greater, and that someone is me, and I'm here. I am the true vine. In other words, Jesus is the true and better Israel who would fulfill all that historic Israel failed to do. He would bless the nations producing much fruit. He is a fruitful vine that we've been longing for. And that means that Jesus, don't miss this, 
Jesus, the God-man, stands at the center of God's redemptive purposes for you and for me. If you want spiritual life, if you want spiritual health, if you want to be raised from spiritual death to life and be sustained from now until the time when Jesus returns, it means you need to be all about Jesus. Do you see it? Got to be about Jesus. Third, Jesus says something about His Father. He says, my dad is a vine dresser. My dad is a vine dresser. God the Father is present and active here too. Catch this. This illustration isn't just about Jesus, God the Son. See, God the Father is, He's not absent and just handing over the duties to the Son. He says the Son is part of something that the Father is doing. And the Father is this grand vine dresser or gardener exercising ultimate control and care over the whole process of growing fruit. Now, I don't know if you call this subordination or what, but the Son gives glory to the Father for caring for the vine, the branches, and the production of fruit. This means spiritual life only comes from the hands of God the Father through God the Son. See, Jesus, He... Friends, He is not merely a prophet. He's not merely a teacher or a guru. He is not someone who is here just to to give a fanciful lesson. Jesus is altogether different than the other spiritual leaders that we find in creation. He is the one who comes and says, I am the God-man. I have all authority given to me. And you must come to me, all of you who are weak and heavy laden. I am the only place that you are going to find the spiritual rest that you long for. Jesus is different. He's a different kind of guy. But there's a second thing that we see here in verses 2 to 6, and that's that the Father prunes us for much more fruit. The Father prunes us for much more fruit in verses 2 to 6. I'm going to read these again, and what I want you to do is just hang close to the text and notice what this says, because if you don't stand close to it, you might misunderstand it. But let's see what it says again. John 15, 2-6. Every branch in me, speaking of Jesus, that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Really kind of a tough text, but hang close. What he's telling us is the Father prunes us for much more fruit. That's the point. Now, you'll notice in this text, that Jesus continues to talk about these branches that are in me. Now, let me just talk about this branches that are in me and what this means, because if you don't get that, this could get really confusing really quickly. So I think we need to start there. What, what are these branches that are in me? Some have said different things. So uh, some have said that these branches that are in me speaks of the Jews who were once in God's vine, but had been cut off and cast off. Uh, Others have said and imagined this to describe apostate Christians connected to Jesus, but who have fallen away. 
But neither of these, I think, makes sense of the in me here. Because Jesus says in John 6.37, before this, that all that the Father gives me will come to me and catch this, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Do you see it? If you're there, you don't get removed. Like You're, you're there. And then in 6.39, this is the will of Him who sent me. Right? The Father that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Do you see the kind of confidence that Jesus speaks of with those who are spiritually united to Christ? He says, I'm not going to lose them. And Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, another clue to what he might mean here, if we think that Bible helps interpret Bible, Paul considers himself to be the Hebrews of Hebrews, and you'll notice that he always speaks of himself as needing to be adopted, and having been adopted. In other words... He too, like other Gentiles, need to be adopted into Jesus, connected to Him by faith. But who are these branches who are in Jesus that Jesus is speaking of here? See, here I think the branches in me simply speak of Jesus' physical followers or disciples who may or may not be united with Him spiritually by faith. Do Do you see it? Like Maybe they are, maybe they're not. And what might make me think this? Well, remember, Judas has been walking with Jesus for three years. He has been watching Jesus perform miracles. He has been watching Jesus teach. And he himself has even performed miracles. And it was just moments ago that he left the disciples. And Judas has abandoned Christ to betray him. And it's in this context that Jesus begins to do some heart work with these disciples about what do we do if someone is with us physically, and then falls away? Is it because they, they were part of you and, 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 and grafted into you by faith and then got cut off? And what would that mean for us? And Jesus says, no, listen, listen. Here's the deal. I am talking specifically about branches that were not in me and united with me by faith. I'm talking about physically, people that are around me. And so Jesus then, after that, He says, okay, there are two kinds of branches that I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about what a a real branch that is connected to me by faith looks like. There are two kinds of branches. One is going to be fruitful, the other is fruitless. And every branch either gets either carried off or cut. That's the options. So starting off first, we see in verses 2a and 6, him describe those fruitless branches or trees that are carried away. See, fruitless trees get taken away and in verse 2, and in verse 6, it says that they are thrown away, withered, gathered, and burned, speaking of God's judgment. In other words, there's no fruit optional section in God's vineyard. You, you hear me? Just hear me. This is an important spiritual reality. There is no fruit option area in God's garden. If you were in God's garden then you're going to be fruitful. That's the point of you being there. That's why God raised you up. Everybody's going to produce fruit. Now why? Why is there no fruit optional section in God's vineyard? Because no fruit means no root. Now don't miss this. Jesus Himself insists there's there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't produce spiritual fruit. We are spiritual driftwood. Good for little more than campfire if we're not fruitful. There's no assurance that your fire insurance is good without fruit. Do you catch that? 
Please don't misunderstand what this means. I want us, I want us to see this clearly because this is so critical for spirituality and, and for you to help others. It's that there's no saving grace without spiritual grapes. You, you catch it? That's what Paul's trying, I mean, what Je, uh, Jesus is trying to say. So says Jesus, and this is the reason I think this is so important, because I meet Christians all the time who I believe misunderstand this in a couple of different ways that are dangerous, and we don't take it serious enough. And I say we should take it serious because Jesus does. So one mistake that I see people make sometimes is some say that grapeless, that a grapeless branch is nice to look at anyway, Right? Like, I'm a pretty good guy. So I might not have fruit, but I'm a pretty good guy. I'm nice to look at. There's nothing wrong with a nice branch here and there that doesn't have fruit. So what's wrong with me just being a fruitless Christian who's kind of good, who's pretty good, right? They point to maybe a a decision at some point in their life where they they put their faith in Jesus, they they checked a card, they had an experience, and they say, look, I think I'm good, right? I mean, isn't that what it means to be a Christian? And yet there's never any fruit. I've had countless conversations with Christians who actually brag about the beauty of grace that produces no fruit. And and then later, maybe even the kind of saving grace that produces nothing but rotten fruit. And they're like, isn't that a sweet kind of grace? And I'm like, no, that's not grace according to the Bible. Right? I mean, good grace, the grace of God, Christ Himself meets you. We are promised there is going to be sweet fruit that comes. So there is no fruit option in the house of God. We, we need to see that a fruit issue is a root issue. No fruit means no Jesus. Others try to, to do something else. They, they think fruit's important. But, but they decide, you, you know what I'm going to try to do is I'm not going to try to like pretend that fruit doesn't matter. I'm going to try to staple fruit on me, Right? I want to look like I got fruit. Don't really care if it's spiritual fruit. I just want people to think that I'm fruitful. Now that can happen in all kinds of ways, you know. Now just imagine with me for a second that you come over to my house and I actually have a grapevine in my backyard. I did not start that. Uh, it just was there. I inherited it. And so I have learned to, in some ways, care for a vine and grow grapes. Now imagine you come over to my house and I, I'm bragging to you about this vine and I want to show it to you and I talk about how lush the grapes are. And you come over and you notice there are no grapes there. And I said, hold on, wait a minute. I was waiting for you. I wanted you to get the freshest groups possible, grapes possible. So I went and got my wheelbarrow and I came back through with a large horde of just juicy, ripe grapes, right? And they're in a wheelbarrow and I've got my staple gun and I've got like some duct tape and I pull it through and you watch me as I staple those grapes on my vine. And then I stand back and I go, what do you think about that? And what's even more amazing is this tree now produces both white grapes and red grapes at the same time. Right? Like you'd say to yourself, I, I think something's wrong here, right? And I think that if you wait a couple weeks, you'll notice as the grapes grow rotten that this, this is not the way things ought to work. This is not the way that God created this thing to work. And yet we want to do that all the time. We, we aren't satisfied with Jesus working through us. And so... Uh, we want to staple all kinds of things to ourselves. We want to staple things to ourselves like, oh, look at all of these ways that I don't sin. Staple, staple. Right? I didn't do that. Or, look how bad that guy is. I'm better than them. Staple. 
right? All because we want people to think of us as being fruitful and we miss the main point, the bigger point, the point that matters eternally, which is, have we been united to the root of Jesus? Like, that's the deal. That's the thing, the huge deal that we need to be concerned with. Have I met with Christ? You know, we don't want change that's merely cosmetic. We want real grapes, real spiritual fruit. And I believe we're hungry for it. We shouldn't settle for less. There's another thing that we see happening here with some of these trees. Notice that it's the fruitful vines or trees that are cut in verse 2b. In the second half, it tells us that it's the fruitful vines that are cut. Now, if you didn't read verse 2 carefully, you might have just missed that. So Jesus promises that God the Father prunes or cuts the tree that is, catch this, fruitful. Now, it doesn't being pruned sound painful. Uh, doesn't that sound like something that, that would be, that would hurt, right? I don't think that word is meant to be a word that's to cause us to think like, oh, that's not really a big deal. It's not a word that like in the Greek means not painful. Like pruning, cutting, it's a, a hard thing. In fact, can I, can I get anybody here this morning who'd be willing to volunteer for me to, to use them for an illustration? Anybody here? How about Jimmy? Jimmy, you want to you wanna come help me? Come on up, Jimmy. Little Jimmy's going to help me with an illustration. Come up here, pal. How's it going this morning? This is Jimmy Bovin. High five. All right. Jimmy's been wanting to be up front and be used for an illustration, so I brought him up for a special illustration. Uh, Jimmy, uh, of course, is Mike and Amy's son. We love Jimmy, don't we? Yes? Come on, guys. Yeah, we love Jimmy. This guy's a pretty cute kid, right? Come on. He's like starting to feel bad about himself. Are y'all going to help him out? Yeah, pretty cute kid. So, so just imagine this. We think about pruning. Pruning hurts. Um, it's, it's hard. But, but Jimmy's going to help us this morning because he wants to make sure this works. And I brought these clippers. Now, when we think about pruning, a lot of times it's easier to think about branches, but God's talking about his children here. And so when we think about pruning, we actually are talking about people that are getting cut in many different ways through difficult experiences of life. So Jimmy, what I wanted to know this morning is, would you be willing to let me just, just to prune you a little bit? And the way I wanted to start was, I was thinking just a pinky. Is a pinky okay? Yeah? Okay, all right. Now I want you to hold it real still. I didn't sharpen these, so this might, I might have to do it a few times. You ready? No, I'm not going to do that. All right, buddy. All right, thank you so much. Everybody give Jimmy a hand. Like, Jimmy was going to let me cut him. Like, what is, what's wrong with this world? Mike, what are you doing with your kids? Um, but you know, our, when we think about pruning, it's helpful to think about, Right? I mean, like when we're thinking about pruning, we're thinking about people that we love. And people that we love are people that God loves even more than we love them. And so what we know is, is that whatever God does, it's not the intentions of his heart to love us, catch us. Our Heavenly Father prunes us with precision and purpose as a loving God. Every cut is with precision and purpose. He doesn't do it accidentally. He always sharpens the blade. He always makes sure he takes exactly what he intends to do. And then it results in exactly what he wants it to result in. That's our God. He doesn't just want something from us. Hear me, when he prunes us, he wants something for us. Do you see it? He wants us to have more fruit. 
And he's not cutting us as, as trees who's not sure if we're fruitful or not. He's seen the fruit and he says, guess what? There's more than you can imagine. It's going to hurt, but there's going to be more fruit. That's the way that God works in the lives of His people. So tell me, what is the more that God wants from us and for us? It's, it's more fruit, right? I mean, He will not let His children settle for less. Our God doesn't do that. And He wants more from us and for us. Now let me ask you this morning, I think this is an important question as we think about the nature of God on display here as the great gardener. Do you trust the gardener? Do you trust the gardener? I mean, isn't that really the main question that we need to ask ourselves when God is at work in our lives? When we don't understand what His hands are doing, don't we have to trust the character of who God is? As you think about it, God is a good God who is all-powerful and all-wise. And we know that when God is, is pruning us, it's for our good. But let me ask you this. When I was about to cut Jimmy's finger off right here in front of all of y'all and go to jail, like who do you think the, the scaredest person in the room was? Jimmy didn't seem too scared, but yeah, mom and dad, right? Mom and dad. And when we think about do we trust the gardener, sometimes I think it's so easy to trust the gardener working on us, right? But then what about when God's at work in our children's lives? Or when God's at work in our friends' lives? Or our spouses' lives? I mean, what kind of cuts have been made to those who you love that have actually begun to cut into you and work in you in ways that you did not expect? Isn't it that sometimes the place where you start to really question God the most? Maybe you've been cut deeply. You're like, I can take it. You start cutting my wife with cancer and I don't know what to do, right? And you have to go back to the Father and say, do I really trust the gardener? Do I trust Him with what He's doing? Do I trust that He really will bring about more more fruit and much more fruit? Friends, this is the, the promise that Jesus is making in this text to us. It is profound and glorious and beautiful. It's not about the pain. It's about the meaning and the purpose. We have a good God who wants the best for us. It's tough. If you're human, when you see yourself or others that start to get cut, you start to question the motives of the gardener. You start to wonder, what good can God do through the painful cuttings of this life? But hear this, Christian. God's power Wisdom and goodness go beyond our ability to comprehend. And it's in those moments that we're invited to trust the hand that we cannot see. And we can trust in those moments that we serve a good Father who works with precision and care to produce not just more fruit, but much more fruit through our lives. We can trust in those moments that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Romans 8.28 We can trust... Like Joel tells us, that he will restore the fortunes that the locust ate. Interesting thing there in Joel, restoring the fortunes. As I've told you before, uh, those fortunes were lost because of his people's sin. And he says, I'm even going to use those experiences to bring about good in your life. And I'm going to replace it more than in full. Because that's the way that our God works. He promises these things. He's a good God. And we have to trust the hand of the gardener as he is at work in our lives. And if you don't think that those are enough, just remember Jesus Christ Himself, the God-man. And we know that He is the chief illustration of the way that God brings about life through cutting 
down those whom he loves to bring about more fruit. Do you not remember that it was Jesus Christ himself who was pierced for our transgressions? He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed and given life. And not just life, but life more abundantly. You see it? A 19th century Scottish pastor, Horatius Bonner, wrote a book that uh, I have read a number of times, specifically through difficult times of suffering. And I I come back and I find it to be a, a sweet resource to read along the Scriptures. He wrote this book called Night of Weeping When God's Children Suffer. And he says this in that work of This very verse in John 15, 2, he writes this. He says, over this precious vine, the Father watches. See it? The Father watches. His desire is that the branch of the Lord should be beautiful and glorious. That this vine should yield its fruit in season. Hence, he not only waters it, but keeps it day and, and night. And he prunes it with the skill and care of a husbandman. He wishes to make each branch fruitful as well as comely. And He spares no pains, for herein is He glorified if we bear much fruit. So how much we owe this heavenly pruning? What rank, luxuriant branches does it cut away? What earthliness? What foolishness? What waywardness? What hastiness? What fleshly lust, what selfish narrowness are all. And one by one, skillfully pruned away by the vine dresser's careful knife. Do you see it? Got it work? That's what he tells us. But also, we see here that he says, stick close to the root to produce much fruit in verses 3-5. to five. You need to stick close to the root. And this illustration, this metaphor, it almost gives way here because you don't usually see a love relationship between a branch and its vine. But that's exactly the image that we are given here in verses 3-5. to Uh, Notice in verse 3 that Jesus pictures His teaching, His Word, as the life-giving vine pulsating through through the branches. Now just let me ask you, do you want more fruit? Like verse 2 speaks of. Do you want that more fruit? Do you want much more fruit? Like verse 5 invites us to dream about. Do you really want the fruit? Can, can you taste the fruit that Jesus speaks of here? Well, what's the secret of being faithful and fruitful according to Jesus? Well, He tells us it's Christ abiding in you and you in Christ. See, this is what Don Carson calls mutual spiritual indwelling. Christ in you and you in Christ. And this really, I believe, is where he presses that vine analogy beyond its limits. Because he's saying that the branches need to to keep a grip on the vine at all times to be fruitful. If you let go, then you're not going to be fruitful. But if you hold on tight, you'll be fruitful more than you can imagine. And so he's saying that these branches need to keep that grip. In fact, verse 5 tells us that you can do, please hear me, nothing, nothing apart from Jesus. Saying, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So don't miss what this means. Rootedness promises fruitfulness. Do you see it? 
If you're really rooted in Jesus, you will be fruitful for Christ. If you're united to Christ by faith, you're going to bear fruit. But don't underestimate, friends, don't underestimate the fact that you have been united to the great I Am of your faith. Jesus Christ. And this language of being in Christ, it really points to the new covenant that the Old Testament looked forward to. See, Christ's Spirit, we're told later, actually dwells in the person who has put their faith in Christ. So that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And it creates in us these longings that this world can neither explain nor satisfy. That's what the Spirit does. So that you have been made for much more fruit than anything this world can make happy. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. But in Christ, we will produce much more fruit. And catch this. Jesus says, your fruitfulness isn't ultimately about your abilities. This is so important. Your fruitfulness. This morning, maybe you're thinking to yourself, I was always the last guy chosen for the basketball team. I did not finish school. I am... Not that good looking of a guy. I don't know if God can really use me. What this tells us is, Jesus says, guess what? Your fruitfulness, it isn't ultimately about your abilities, but your abiding. You catch that? When he's talking about fruitfulness, he never talks about what you bring to the, what you bring to the vine. He talks about what the vine brings to the branches. And so whatever fruit you produce comes because of the life-giving, vine-pulsating energy that the branch is brought through that vine and not vice versa. So whatever fruit comes from others comes from Jesus too. Any fruit that they have, any fruit that I have, it is all from Christ. So stick close to Jesus in His Word. Stick close to Jesus in prayer and obedience and in community. Those are ways that you abide in such a way that you are promised the more fruit that He looks forward to. But catch this. We have seen here that abiding and fruit are very important. They are a big deal. So what are they? What are abiding and fruit here in the text? Well, really, verses 7 to 16 tell us this. And so we're going to end there uh, with our third point, which is abiding in the root brings much more fruit that gives glory to God. Abiding in the root brings much more fruit that gives glory to God. So check how he explains in verses 7 to 11, uh, really what, what this fruit and abiding are. Look there with me. Beginning in verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. What a great sight. Full joy. Now, at first glance, it might look like God's just sort of a genie in the bottle, right? I mean, He says, pray for whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Now, that's, a, I think, a really big blank check to give people. But catch the first part that gives us a picture of abiding being the prerequisite for that kind of prayer. Did you notice that? You need to abide like this if you're going to ask like that. So you'll notice, for one thing, that to abide means to abide in Christ's words, and for Christ's words specifically to abide in us. 
Now, this, is, this isn't some kind of mystical union that we have with Jesus. We do have that through the Spirit. Spirit works in us, through us. But here, abiding means God's Word, the Bible, saturates our soul so much that the Scriptures transform our desires and that we begin to look a lot more like Jesus in the way that we pray. You see that? We're, we're transformed, including the way that we pray to God through our understanding of God's Word. We desire God's will above our own selfish wills. We want God's will above our own because we trust that His desires for us are better than our desires for ourselves. Even when that means we get pruned. We also here see clearly what abiding and what fruit are. First, abiding. So catch this. Jesus clarifies what abiding means in verses 9 to 10. Did you catch that? He says, let me explain what I mean by abiding. In verses 9 to 10. He says their abiding has to do with love. And love is demonstrated by obedience to God. Abiding has to do with love, and love is tied to obedience with God. So just as Jesus revealed His love for God through obeying God in every way, we display our union with Christ and our abiding in Him and our love for Him through obedience to His Word. So if you love Christ, you will keep His Word. Now, we, we see this elsewhere in Scripture. In 1 John 5, 3, John says it this way, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His, can, His commandments are not burdensome. So this reflects the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, who seeks to make us holy by pointing us to Jesus. So the more that we press into Jesus, the more holy we will grow. Obedience to Christ grows with our love for Jesus. The more we obey, the more we love, the more that we love, the more that we obey. Do you see it? There's a a relationship back and forth. And I think that'll go on forever. So obedience isn't just an issue of love. And love is an issue of abiding. And that abiding promises much fruit of holiness. But what specific pieces of fruit are we talking about here? Right? I mean, there have been a lot of people that have suggested a lot of different things that this fruit might be. But I think that Don Carson is on to something in his commentary when he says that the fruit that Jesus speaks of here represents everything that is the product of effective prayer in Jesus' name. And really here in the text. And so what are some of those things? Obedience to Jesus' commands. That's a fruit. That's verse 10. Verse 11, experiencing Jesus' joy. It's fruit. And then in verse 12, a love for one another that increases. And then verse 16, our witness to the world. Do you see that? All of these are fruits that come from our abiding in Jesus. Stick close to Him and you'll see these kinds of things in your life. This is a sweet fruit that comes from persevering dependence on the vine. Now we're going to be talking about love for one another and a witness for the world in later weeks. But for now, let me just dwell on a couple of fruits here. Those of, uh, that come about through pruning. Uh, one is holiness... And the other is joy. And then I'll just look finally at the ultimate end of our fruit. What's the purpose of it all? So the first is holiness. Uh, We know that the fruit of holiness is going to come about if we stick close to Jesus. This speaks of sanctification. It's a process where we grow in holiness or obedience to God. And if you look uh, and do some reading on sanctification, uh, you'll find that that sanctification really comes in in two different ways. Uh, One is uh, mortification and the other is vivification. So mortification is putting death to sin and the other is vivification which is coming alive to God. 
And those are really, in a sense, like two grand wings on a, a majestic eagle. Both of them need to be flapping for you to take spiritual flight. You, you need to be putting off sin, but you also need to be flapping with that coming alive to God. Both of those are important for spiritual vitality. Not just one. Uh, not just the other. You need both. So mortification, you'll remember Colossians 3.5, Paul tells us what that is. He says, uh, it's where you put to death, therefore, that which is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. You see, you're, you're putting to death those things. Let me ask you, are you putting those things to death in your life? Are you putting to death sexual immorality? Are you putting to, to death in your life covetousness? I think in our culture, sometimes we tend to coddle sins in ways that are really deadly. And I think one reason is, is because our culture doesn't really believe in sin, and we don't really believe that sin is what the Bible says. So if you look at the Bible, the Bible says that sin is really an apex predator. You know what an apex predator is? An apex predator is, is one of those creatures uh, that basically is so far up on the food chain that nothing tops it. So everything eats somebody except for the apex, uh, apex predator who eats everybody. Now, I don't think a lot of you would probably send your kid or your spouse in to play fetch with an apex predator like a grizzly bear, right? I mean, I don't think any of y'all go up to the bear park up in Prescott or whatever and open up your windows and start feeding the bears, right? That would get weird. It would get dangerous. That's how kids get eaten. But when it comes to sin, a lot of times we, we treat sin like it's not an apex predator, like it's not a big deal, right? We open the window, we pet it, we feed it, we think that at any given time we can just like roll up the window and everything will be fine again, and that's how people lose arms, right? I mean, isn't that what Jesus said? Like, if you've got a problem with sin, you need to like cut your hand off, pluck out your eye. Like, that's how we, we lose arms and legs, is we don't take sin as seriously as God does. We don't take sin as seriously as the Bible does. Little sins grow into big sins, and, and big sins can consume us and take our lives, draw us away from the vine, Right? If we don't have faith in Christ, if we not be united by faith. So we need to take sin seriously. Are you taking sin that seriously in your life? Are you killing sin? Because John Owen says if, if you're not killing sin, sin will be killing you. So brothers and sisters, kill sin in your life. Take it seriously. Seek help with that. Get somebody to hold you accountable. Join a community group. Get somebody else to help you with those sins. But it's not just about putting sin to death. It's also about vivification. Or living unto God. See, John Calvin says that vivification is the desire to live in a holy and devoted matter, a, a manner, a desire arising from, catch this, rebirth. If you've been born again, you desire to live to God. As it were said that a man dies to himself that he may begin to live to God. So do you, do you catch that? I mean, here's, here's the thing that I think is amazing about this when you think about this idea of cutting and life. What John Owen, Calvin, others have said is that really uh, there's a sense in which we need to mortify sin, put sin to death ourselves, cut away those sins in our lives so that, catch this, it, it frees up room so that we can spring forth life in new areas. More fruit and much more fruit. And it doesn't happen unless we are putting sin to death in our lives. Attacking it. Killing it. And seeing that really the ultimate goal isn't to say like, I've got a merit badge because I've killed more sins than anybody. But it's actually to give way so that there is much more room for much more fruit to the glory of God. Do you, do you see that? We need both. We need both if we're going to bring glory to God. But there's another thing that we see here clearly, and that's that, uh, that joy, 
Not only holiness, but joy comes from uh, this, this fruit. This fruit of joy comes to us. We know from the Westminster Catechism that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Same statements in our statement of faith. And I believe a lot of people think of joy or happiness as being at odds with holiness, right? I mean, think about it. When holiness comes to your mind, do you really ultimately see somebody who looks like they've had bitter grapes or sweet grapes? Like I, bet, I bet a lot of you, when you think about holiness, um, you think of somebody who is boring and sad and doesn't have a lot of fun. It's true, right? And yet what Jesus says here and He promises is that you've really experienced holiness not that's like stapled to someone, but that's coming from life within, being connected to Jesus by faith, that actually one of those fruits that's going to come out is a sweet joy. A joy in God. A joy that only comes from heaven in the darkest places, that gives glory to God and testifies to the fact that there is life that is not grounded in this world, but then in a world that it is to come. That's, that's a promised fruit that is promised us in Christ. And this morning you're feeling guilty because you don't have this kind of joy. Well, friend, this is an invitation into that joy. An invitation into killing sin and seeking the the life that God has for you. A joyful life. Happiness in God. You see it? Every cut that the Father gives is intended to bring about the sweet fruit of joy for you. And not just today, but forever. The last question we have to ask is, well, what's the purpose of all of this? And God tells us, notice He says in verse 8, which I skipped to come back to, that God's glory is the ultimate end of all of it. God's glory is the ultimate end of all of it. Just notice the progression. God, the vine dresser, cares for the vine who is Jesus the Son, who gives life to Christians, who bear fruit, more fruit and much fruit. And all of it, he says in verse 8, is all to the glory of God the Father. Do you see that? Like the purpose of fruit, it is not just like so that we can taste it and say that's sweet and get another piece. It's so that we can taste it, see that it's sweet, and give glory to God that He has done this. And here's what's amazing about this. Maybe you missed it. God the Father gets the glory for the fruit His vine produces through His branches. And brothers and sisters, what that means for you is, uh, I know that you are sinners, I'm a sinner too, and we've been saved by grace. And maybe you think to yourself just for a moment, that how can a sinner like me bring glory to a holy and righteous God. Anybody ever felt that way before? Ever had Just me. Okay. Well, let me just talk about my personal experience. I feel dark. And I feel like my sin, the way that I've treated my wife or my kids, or even the thoughts that I've had in my mind and heart, I try to go back to pray. I go back to read the Scriptures. And I think, how can a sinner like me please a God like this? Right? And what God here says is, let me make you a promise. Those that have united to Christ by faith, I have made them clean. And not just that, I haven't just cleaned you to leave you alone. I've cleaned you so that you will bear fruit that will bring glory to me forever. Now, I don't know what you're living for today. I don't know if you're living for a car that's going to rust and break down. I don't know if you're living for a job that you will not have forever and somebody will take your place and do better. I don't know if you're living for money that, you know, ultimately is not you know, going to sustain you or satisfy you. It will all go away. And if it doesn't, then you'll leave it to somebody who will use it. I don't know what it is that you're living for. But friends, let me tell you this. There's nothing that you can live for like what God is promising here. Eternal glory do God's name. That is something that lasts forever. There's nothing like that. If you want more for your life and you're thinking I've been made for more of this, 
you will forever find yourself thinking, I've been made for something more. I cannot find it. And the more is here. It's right here in John 15. It is the glory of God. Friends, don't be satisfied for less than that. Because you will die sad and sinful rather than happy and holy to the glory of God's name. Let's pray.